This episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast is brought to you by Hamilton, a value-add investment and development firm in Nashville, Tennessee, focused on bringing passive real estate investment opportunities directly to your inbox. Visit www.investwithhamilton.com invest to sign up for upcoming investment opportunities. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. Uh, my name is Tyler Cobble. I'm your host as always. And today we're going to be taking a bit of a left turn and talking about something that isn't completely commercial real estate, but that is something that I feel like we as the real estate community should be talking about. Uh, and that is the SFR. We're going to use a lot of, uh, a whole lot of uh, real estate specific terms today. SFR, single family rental portfolios and BTR, build to rent. Uh, they really go hand in hand. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, they seem to be creating an issue with the real estate market. Um, I want your opinion on that as well. Please leave that uh, in the comments below. I want to know your thoughts. Jump in the live stream if you are joining us live here on YouTube. Uh, as we go through the process and talk about uh, the SFR portfolio trend and what is going on uh, in in the marketplace right now. So before we dive in, I'm going to give a couple of uh, just brief overviews of what I think about it. And I've got several articles that are also linked in the show notes uh, that you all can take a look at and dive further into and do your own research on uh, as well. Uh, SFR is, uh, in my opinion, it's creating an artificially low supply. A, a part of the reason um, that we're having a housing shortage is because of SFR portfolio sales. I'm not going to say that the entire reason is because of that, but I do think they're contributing to uh, a shortage of the housing stock, very similar to the Airbnb market, right? Um, years ago, people didn't used to be able to buy portfolios of houses the way they are now. They were treated as a totally different investment vehicle now. Um, institutional capital has cheaper capital than the average American, uh, which means that they can afford to pay 20 to 50% over market rates for these houses. Um, not only have I read data on that, I've actually confirmed that in person with uh, a couple of single or build to rent developers uh, here in Nashville. Um, when they were telling me the numbers of what they were getting on some of these houses that they were building, renting, and then selling to institutional investors, it just, you run the numbers on it. I mean, they're getting like three cap rates, uh, three caps. It's just, just absolutely insane. Um, the average American cannot compete with that price. Uh, and let's, I mean, also, look, I'm an urbanist, right? I don't believe in suburban sprawl. I think that build rent communities add to that problem. They put uh, a lot of stress on infrastructure and don't become the walkable communities that, you know, we really need to be focused on uh, and takes land that could otherwise become parks or some sort of recreation. Uh, you know, you can argue with me on that until the cows come home. Um, hope, but, you know, I'd like to leave the cows in those fields instead of turning them into rental suburban neighborhoods. So let's go ahead and dive on into this first article uh, here from Seeking Alpha. Institutional buyers boosted market share in hot housing market. This is an NAR study, National Association of Realtors. Institutional buyers made up 13.2% of the residential sales market in 2021. Think about that. 13 out of every 100 homes sold went to institutional capital. Uh, let's see. Typically, they their median price is typically 26% lower than the state's median price. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are buying... Uh, at better rates. They're just buying a different housing stock that is intentionally for residential houses. Uh, market share increased from 11.8% in 2020 
um, still lower than the 15.7% share that they had back in 2014. So all in all, still trending up. Uh, in areas with higher share of institutional investors, renters account for 30% of households on average compared to 27% in areas with lower share of institutional investors. So 10% more uh, renters in areas where there are institutional investors. If you're in Nashville, uh, look at Spring Hill. Over 50% of the single family homes in that market are rentals, the majority of which are owned by institutional capital. So if you're trying to buy, you know, Spring Hill used to be a great spot to buy a starter home. It's almost next to impossible now because over half of them are just rentals. Uh, according to a separate survey of realtors by the NAR, institutional buyers accounted for 15% of single-family home purchases in 2021. Uh, the major reason? Because they offered cash directly to buyers. They started these programs in the last couple of years, uh, you know, namely through Zillow, which was a, a massive uh, mess, um, but uh, they, they ended up getting saved by one of these teams. So let's see, 42% of properties purchased by institutional investors were converted to single family rentals. The other 45% were resold. Um, some of them were just being resold to other institutional capital investors. Um, although some of them did realize that, uh, hey, Yehosef, how you doing, man? Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us live. Um, on average, though, the offer price of the institutional investors was about the same as non-institutional investors. Uh, states with the highest were Texas at 28%, Georgia at 19%, Oklahoma at 18%. I mean, think about it. Texas, 28%. Over one in four homes sold in Texas went to an institutional buyer. Absolutely insane. Um, so there you have it. Uh, you can kind of see what is going on in the world there. Let's look at this Freddie Mac. Um, this is from Commercial Loan Direct. Um, on the SFR pilot program that they've recently announced. The biggest reason that single-family rental portfolios have become such an investable asset this uh, economic cycle is because financing has actually changed on them. They are no longer treated like single-family homes. Uh, if you bundle up five or more, it is actually treated like a multifamily investment asset, which means that they are able to get better debt terms than you and I ever could. They have non-recourse loans, uh, prepayment penalty of yield maintenance or step down. Uh, let's see the application fee 0.1% uh, reserves for taxes, insurance and HOA. Um, let's see here. This is where it gets interesting $5 million minimum, they want you to buy a ton of homes, you have to have at least five homes in the portfolio. Um, let's see here, you come down to the underwriting requirements term length five, seven or 10 year notes. Max LTV LTC is 70% on five years, 75% on seven to 10, or 80%, uh, which also includes rehabilitation costs. Typically in multifamily investments or most commercial investments, you're in that 25% down range. So, you know, 80%, 75% is not that crazy. Uh, but look at this, max amortization, 30-year amortization. That is how they're able to pay these 20 to 50% prices over market is because they're able to get a crazy amortization for an investment. Typically, that would be 20, 25 years. Uh, multifamily, it's, it's not atypical to have a 30-year amortization. I've actually seen, uh, especially if you're going with a life insurance company to, to loan you your perm debt on an asset, they can get a 40-year amortization. So if you think about what that does to the monthly cash flow, it makes this vehicle, it turns single-family homes into an investment vehicle, which 
becomes a problem on a large scale. You think about the typical investor of single family homes, right? Growing up, I knew two people that were really big into single family home investing that had over 100 homes. And they took 15, 20 years to get there. It just took forever because the, the financing was different. It was tougher to just continue buying all these homes. Now, these groups like BlackRock are buying up 50 to 100 plus homes or more at a time. Uh, they just, you can't compete with that. So, you know, while the mom and pop investors currently own a majority of the market share, you know, we'll see here in, a, in an article here in a minute that institutional capital only owns 2% of the market, but they are buying in Texas 28% of the market. It's, it doesn't take a mathematician to realize that very quickly they will have a majority of market share uh, in these markets within the foreseeable future. This is an article from, uh, let's see, Walker Dunlap. They actually put this out. Let me see if I can zoom out here. Uh, they actually put this out. This is a, a, a white paper that they've got on um, build for rent uh, or you know, single-family portfolio lending. This is a loan that they actually got for an investor. I would imagine this was before all the recent rate hikes here this year. Uh, came through Fannie Mae. It was a $7.86 million loan. This is actually in Fairview, Tennessee, right down the street. 3.11% at a 74% LTV, 1.25 times debt service coverage ratio, 10-year term. Look at this, amortization, three years interest only. That is something that only in institutional capital can get. You as a, a, a home buyer... Uh, will not be able to get interest-only loans. So, especially non-recourse interest-only loans, which is what this is. Let's see here. This next one is from Housing Wire. And this is, uh, this one's where it starts to get a little bit crazy. Despite the growing appetite for SFR investments, institutional equity ownership in the overall SFR market today is still estimated at only around 2%, Right? doesn't sound that big. It's not that big of a deal. I've had several, I've been sharing a lot of this on my Instagram here lately. So if y'all are here from my Instagram, you've probably, you're probably getting tired of me talking about all of this, but I think everybody needs to realize what's going on. Uh, and several of y'all have jumped in and said, oh, 2% is not that big of a market share. You know, stand, look, standing up for institutional investors is like standing up for billionaires. You are closer to being on the streets uh, than you are to them. But Anyway, MIM believes that institutional SFR ownership is likely to grow significantly over the next decade. Uh, from 2% today to 10% in the future will result in a need of over $200 billion in incremental debt financing, which is not that much for this level of investors. Uh, you could very easily see them grow from 2 to 10%. Look at this. Securitized SFR homes are heavily clustered in the Sun Belt. So while they're saying you know 2% all over the United States... In the third quarter of 2021 alone, institutional investors bought 42.8% of homes for sale in the Atlanta, at the, oh, Atlanta, wow, I obviously cannot talk today, in the Atlanta metro area. 42.8% of homes, almost half of every home sold in the Atlanta MSA went to institutional capital. Uh, it's just wild to me. Um, let's see, 38.8% of homes in the Phoenix, Glendale, Scottsdale area. That's a significant amount of homes. Um, the five SFR companies expanded their housing stock between March 31st, 2018 and September 30th, 2021 by 27%. 
with a total net property gain of 76,235 single-family homes. And it's only starting to hockey stick, right? I mean, back in 2018, they weren't buying nearly as much as they are now because it wasn't as easy. And especially with interest rates going where they are, people are getting forced into renting. I'm not a big proponent of home ownership for myself, but for the majority of Americans, buying homes is the best way for them to build wealth. And if you don't have that opportunity, if the institutions are grabbing that up, that creates a problem. I mean, I look at this, uh, you know, there's no, you don't cause any problems by investing in apartment complexes. The average American will never be able to buy an apartment complex. Those are intended to be rented out for their life. But single family homes, you start taking that away and now people can't buy anything and build wealth in anything. Uh, it's just, I, I foresee that being a problem. Maybe I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, let me know in the comments. I want to know. Maybe I'm looking at this the wrong way. Um, I'm just trying to provide the facts here, but you know, look, I know that I'm a bit biased because I, I've been looking at this for a while and, and I just don't think that, I just don't think it's right. Uh, this next one is from Globestreet.com. SFR providers are increasingly moving toward build for rent. So let's see. Build for rent homes accounted for 26% of properties added to the portfolios of single family rental home providers in the fourth quarter, up from 3% in Q3 2019. Think about that. That is a nearly 10x increase uh, in the properties that they are doing are coming from build for rent. Let's see. The firm's residential land broker survey also notes that build for rent operators are actively snapping up land across the country, particularly in the southeast. Nine to 14 percent of lots in the southeast are going to build for rent. Nearly one in 10. Same with the southwest, 10 percent and 11 percent of lots. So think about that. Build for rent is you're taking land that, again, I don't think it should be developed anyway, but it's, it's, you can't, you're not going to stop suburban development. The, the, urbanist, uh, I, the urban idealist in me um, wishes that people would just focus on building taller, more dense apartment complexes because it's better for everybody, but it's not going to happen. But think about this. Now, one in 10 lots that would otherwise go to market and be sold to an individual or maybe a mom and pop investor are now getting built, rented, packaged up and sold to institutional capital. So they will never hit the market. It's not even a possibility for the average American to go out and buy this. So that's, that's a problem, right? I mean, these would otherwise be sold on the market. Um, and they're and they're just not. So, you know, what, what is the solution? Um, should it be regulated? Maybe. Um, you know, I'm not a big proponent of regulation when it comes to, uh, you know, real estate or business in general, but we, we do have regulations in place to protect ourselves against things like this, right? I mean, if, if we live in a true capitalist society, we wouldn't have regulations against monopolies, right? Fortunately, we do have some protections. Now, you could argue against whether or not they actually work, uh, but we do have regulations against monopolies, that is, in a true 100% capitalist society, you would be able to go out and take, start a business that takes over the world. You'd be the next East India company. Um, I think regulation helps. I think don't sell your house to institutional investors. Don't sell to Zillow. Don't sell to Redfin. Because that is how these groups are ending up with these homes. Um, 
it's it's tougher to to do that on the on the development side though. I mean, you've got builders that are going out and build, uh, buying land. Canada has recently uh, instituted some pretty interesting regulations with regards to foreign investors because foreign investors have just been buying homes in British Columbia and not even necessarily renting them out, just letting them sit there. So because it's easier for them to just move that cash into Canada, let it sit and not worry about what could possibly happen in their own country. And that's causing a housing shortage in Canada, uh, which is, you know, I don't know. I think it's I think it's a problem. That's that's my soapbox for today. Thanks for coming to my TED talk. Um, you know, th- that's a couple of things that we can do. Write your councilmen, write your senators, um, tell them that we should be regulating uh, this type of buying. If you believe that, maybe you don't. Uh, Evan is saying seeing build to rent more common. For example, company called Redwood does that in my area. Cluster homes and ranch style. It's it's happening left and right. I mean, I'm seeing them all over the place. I. Uh, uh, the reason I actually started looking into this a few months ago, I bought some land to build a, a condo, um, a condo complex. And, and my partner who um, had been investing in some of the build to rent stuff, he looked at it and he was like, the returns just aren't there. And so I, I started poking him. I was like, OK, what what kind of returns do you want to see? And he's like, well, on our assets, we're selling them at a three percent cap rate. And so that's when I started running the math. I was like, OK, so you're running these for what? I ran that. I was like, OK, so you're selling that. And then I looked at the, the market that he was selling these in. I was like, you're selling these for 20% over asking price in the market. And he goes, yeah, it doesn't make sense for us to do otherwise. I was like, man, that, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that it's not a bad investment vehicle because clearly the returns are there. There's high demand. But also, I do feel like SFR portfolios, build to rent is kind of like creating a problem. And then patting itself on the back for for providing a solution that they're going to make a lot of money off of. You, you know, you think about it, you create this artificially low supply, you raise housing prices because you're able to pay 20 to 50 percent over market rates. And then you're like, oh, you can't afford to buy a house. Here's one you can rent. So so kind of them. So there you have it. That's my rant for this week. Uh, thank you for joining me. Um, let me know your thoughts on SFR portfolios, build to rent in the comments below. If you're listening on the podcast, jump on the YouTube. I want to, I want to hear your thoughts. Um, and that's, uh, that's it for today. We'll see you all next week. Thank you for listening to the commercial real estate investor podcast brought to you by Hamilton, your resource for passive real estate investment opportunities. Visit www.investwithhamilton.com to start building your passive real estate portfolio today.